right, Andy, how about this one? I am an executive director of a $1 million agency based in Southern Nevada. We employ a few part-time staff and 11 full-time staff. I was told by a friend that I need to be careful once I reach 15 employees because it triggers new federal regulations, thresholds, and HR rules. Can you please clarify this for me? Yeah, this, this, is, this is one we're definitely going to want to bring in an expert on. So I can, I can start off, but then we're going to want to definitely pitch it to somebody else who knows more than we do. Um, the, 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 le- the 15 employee threshold, there's a 15 employee threshold, there's a 50 employee threshold. And what happens at each one of these is new federal laws start to apply to your nonprofit. Um, the one at 15, I believe, is the Civil Rights Act. It says you can't discriminate someone on the basis of race and all the other things that go along with that. Um, you've got ADA rules, which is the Americans with Disabilities Act. There's all, all of these different acts that sort of start to uh, become important for you to make sure that you're complying with at a certain number of employees. The, the good thing as a nonprofit, and it's probably a really good nonprofit, is that you're thinking about those things ahead of time. And I'm going to guess that if you're receiving any state money, any city money, any money from anywhere – that you're probably complying with a lot of these things already. You may not have a written policy in place, but you're doing it. You're not, you're not discriminating I would hope based, not. On, based I mean, on race, right? I would hope that there's a one-person staff that you're not discriminating, right. right? So the difference is, is that like you should, like, for example, you shouldn't be doing any of these things, right? But at a certain number of employees, the EEOC can get involved and you can get in big trouble if you're not complying with them. So you just need to be aware of them. But it's a perfect example of let's bring in somebody who knows all of the detail on this and they can tell us specifically you know, where to go for more information and that kind of stuff. That sounds great because I'm also guessing the person who wrote us this question is probably saying, geez, do should I try to keep my, my staff threshold under 15? Is this going to be so much work that th- this is going to create headaches for me? And it doesn't sound like it I based on what I you're saying. I, I mean, unless you're a horrible nonprofit and you do terrible things and you're afraid you're going to get in trouble after you get past a certain threshold because you're evil. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't think that's the case. Yeah, I, I would hope not. So. Well, we'll see what the expert says. Hey, everybody, it's Stacey Wedding here, and I am joined today by the fabulous Amy Hunter. Amy is the managing partner of the Simmons Group and someone that I just consider an HR and organizational development guru. So welcome, Amy. Oh, thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. Um, Can you just kick us off and give our, our listeners a little bit of background on yourself and uh, how, how you got kind of into this, this world. Yeah, absolutely. Um, as you know me well, I usually start with a, a silly joke. So I like long walks on the beach and vacations in the sunset. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but so a little bit about myself. I've, I've been in the HR uh, realm, if you will, for decade and a half professionally, but really it's been my passion for a very long time. And I, although not born and bred here in Nevada, consider Nevada and Las Vegas specifically my home. So my husband and I've been here nearly 13 years um, and really well connected in the, in the community. I just love giving back and and being part of our community. It's got great passion and and excitement going on right now. my areas of expertise are really around um, HR and training. Um, I love to help and guide people. So anything related to that, I likely can help brainstorm and come up with solutions to solving problems. Well, I know that for a fact. I've experienced it firsthand. And I'll tell you, all of us can use, use guidance. So we're lucky that we have you in our community. 
Um, all right, so getting started, we have a question um, that really, you know, candidly stumped uh, Andy and I. We certainly aren't HR gurus, and we like to bring in the experts from time to time. So here's the question. I am an executive director of a $1 million agency based in Southern Nevada. We employ a few part-time staff and 11 full-time staff. I was told by a friend that I need to be careful once I reach 15 employees because it triggers new federal regulations, thresholds, and HR rules. Can you please clarify this for me? Ooh, what a loaded fun one. I love when I get questions like this um, because as you know, small organizations, we're oftentimes wearing so many hats on the day-to-day -day that it's hard to know you know, what do I do with my board? What do I do with my people? What do I do with my finances? And so I think what you and Andy are doing is really great. And I think that um, the the people part of it is oftentimes, oftentimes very scary for people. Um, and so the question is awesome. So uh, there's a little bit of a nuance to what the definition of full-time means and where regulations fall into place depending on how many employees, I'm air quoting, right, that you have. Um, so there's this, I use a, a little silly analogy about how many FTEs, full-time equivalent, which is FTE, full-time equivalent, do you have versus the number of actual belly buttons that you employ, right? There's that that nuance of those part that part-time that the individual put in that question for you. So the general 50,000 foot view uh, or answer to her question more so is yes. 15 is a threshold, both for Nevada regulations and federal regulations. Um, and there are several uh, various thresholds. So as a, a solopreneur or a single individual entity, you have about a dozen to a dozen and a half different regulations, both federal and state, that you have to oblige. And then once you do get to that 15, whether belly button or FTE, um, there are another half dozen or so um, regulations that come into play that you now have to oblige. The next threshold then quickly approaches, which is at 20. And then the big one where nearly everything comes into play and, and then you don't really have many more added on after is 50. Wow. Okay. Well, Obviously, so then based on what you're saying, so when you talk about 15 sort of triggers this threshold, but you said that can really be, that can either be 15, I love the, the phrase belly buttons, but so that can be a mix of part-time and full-time from what you just said, correct? Yes, that's exactly right. So let's say I've got 20 employees, but I've got eight of them that work part-time, if the, if the eight of them equal any sort of, well, eight of them will equal at least one additional full body from a mathematical equation for how much time they're working in a week, then some regulations will come into play. So if you and I, Stacey, are working part-time for an organization and our time together equals one whole 40-hour-a-week employee, then we are one additional FTE, okay. increasing our numbers. Wow, this stuff is complex, isn't it? It sure is, but it keeps me on my toes. <laughs> I was like, just, you know, I, not having a math brain, just right there where we went down there, just put me, you know, made me start to like break out in hives, Amy's. <laughs> I get a little verklempt every time I have to do math too. <laughs> 
Um, all right. Well, so for the you know for the person who wrote this question, I'm sure for any of our listeners who you know are are in the business of hiring or growing their organizations, do you have any advice, any general guidance? Because there's there are so many rules and regulations out there, and and because nonprofits notoriously wear and nonprofit leaders wear so many hats, like like we talked about. Um, do you have any just general advice about how do people keep abreast of this stuff? Yeah, absolutely. So a couple of different ways. Um, One being uh, reach out to someone like myself. I'm always happy to answer the quick question. Um, I'm on social media. You can catch me on my email. I'm happy to give you my phone number. You can text me. Um, But reach out to someone that may have a little bit more knowledge or depth or have learned through that. Um, You can also use the DOL website. So it's just dol.gov and put in the search bar anything that you might have questions about. Um, I know for our clients, we do a resource guide. So when we have small to medium sized companies that are below that 50 threshold, we give them a resource guide that says, here are the laws. Um, and it gets updated every year because we are, our government officials change legislation all the time. Um, and so we update that every year that says, here are the laws from one to 15, here are the laws from 15 to 20 and gives you the the differentiation between is it a belly button count or is it an FTE count? (laughs) Um, And so there's a a lot of stuff out there on the internet that can be of a resource. And um, one of my biggest pieces of advice is, and this is more of like a general piece of advice for nonprofits than, than just um, people in general, but for businesses in general, which is treat your nonprofit team and that relationship, employee-employer relationship as a business. Um, when it comes down to it, the nuts and bolts of it uh, are that you still have a lot of the same obligations and regulations as an employer that people that are working for a profit have. And that can sometimes feel, when, when an employee leaves and it's not on good terms, that can sometimes feel really hurtful because so many in my experience, all of the nonprofits I work with, the individuals working for the company or the executive directors or senior leadership put their heart and soul into the business. And when an employee leaves on not great terms, it becomes very personal. And if you keep some of those policies and procedures, more mindset of this is a business, that kind of helps you put a perspective on what's the right thing to do for the organization. I think that's um, really sage advice. And I know from my own experience, it feels like um, HR matters are some of the biggest matters that get nonprofits and probably, I'm guessing, for-profits into trouble, right? Yeah, um, exactly. <laughs> which is why they need professionals and experts um, like you, like your firm, or like some of these other resources you mentioned out there, which is um, so helpful. So, well, Amy, this has been, um, I've learned a lot and I hope the person who asked the question, our listeners have learned a thing or two as well. Uh, we will make sure to connect to your contact information in the show notes in case there's ever someone who has a quick question and watch out. People might take you up on that. (laughs) Bring it on. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Nonprofit governance. Nonprofit answers. Nonprofit board. Nonprofit management. Nonprofit marketing. Nonprofit resources. The Alliance for Nevada Nonprofits presents Nonprofit Everything, the podcast about everything nonprofit, with your host Andy Shurek and Stacy Wedding. 
Well, this is completely brand new and we haven't done this before. This extra special episode of Nonprofit Everything. Here's one where Stacy and I, we have two questions this week and both of them we've pitched out to experts because it turns out that Stacy and I don't actually know a whole lot. So please enjoy this, this special episode of Nonprofit Everything. We've got two fantastic experts and as always, uh, Nonprofit Everything is a production of the Alliance for Nevada Nonprofits and only works when you send us your questions. So please, please, please send us questions. Go to the Nonprofit Everything webpage, go to the Ann webpage, uh, tweet us, send it to Facebook, do whatever you can to get information to us and ask us new questions. We love it. And uh, we hope you enjoy this special 100% expert version of Nonprofit Everything. Today's episode is sponsored by Brenda J. Stout CPA, a full-service accounting firm specializing in nonprofit tax compliance and IRS problem resolution. Find out more at brendastoutcpa.com or check the Nonprofit Everything show notes for contact information. Thank you, Brenda J. Stout CPA. Thank you, Brenda. is a local foundation that does work in the space that we're working in, but we're having difficult time getting past their gatekeeper. Do you have any ideas on how we can engage the gatekeeper so we can ultimately get to the donor? Wow, that's a good question. And, and that comes up a lot because there are, there are organiz- foundations that, that have like, because the internet, right? The, everybody has their stuff online. And so that opens it up to infinity people like asking for things. And so there needs to be some way for the organization to sort of filter out who's, who's legitimate to give money to, who's not legitimate, who's really doing good work in the community. And like, so there is a lot of times yes, a single, that it could be intermediary. A, yeah, a single person, a gatekeeper, somebody who, who you need to convince that this is important enough to pass beyond them to get to the people that are actually giving the money away. That is a fantastic question. It is. I think we see it a lot, um, and it, we're probably going to see more of it as you look at sort of trends in the nonprofit sector. I mean, I can speak just from my experience. Um, I serve as a trustee of a charitable trust, and I also used to work at our local community foundation, um, one of our local community foundations. And um, so some people might have looked at me in that role. I never viewed myself as a gatekeeper, but they may have looked at me in that role. And for me, it was very much about needing to see if if you aligned, you know, you would have to make the case to me of why this makes sense for me to take it to that donor, right? Like, why are you, A, do you even like, have you done your homework enough? And hope in most of the cases, I at least was involved in things that we communicated. Here's what our priorities, our funding priorities are, right? Here's what we're looking to accomplish. So if someone didn't do their homework with that, I didn't feel comfortable at all about even moving them past that because I thought they didn't take the time to figure that out to even talk to me. They're how I'm I'm not going to risk putting them in front of that donor, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So it was also about and how do they communicate to me what they do in a way that um, is easy for me to then share that message with the actual donor or philanthropist, right? Like, because if they get too much into the weeds about what they're doing or get too detailed, it's very easy to then like lose sight of, of the passion behind why this makes sense. So for me, it would oftentimes be like, 
help me communicate on your behalf, right? So help make my job a little easier so I can sit there and and say, yeah, I'm willing to take this to the donor and we may get you connected or I may still be the intermediary, but I'm going to help get you some money from the donor. So for me, it was a little bit about like that homework piece and making my life and job easier because you can imagine gatekeepers and people in that role, the intermediaries, they are hit up all the time, right? Everyone is trying to get them on their side to ultimately get to the donors. So like, how do you make their life a little easier? Yeah. So how the, when you're, when you're looking at, at, at requests or people are bringing requests to you, um, how much of it do you feel like your, your sort of personal opinion about whether or not the organization's a good organization? Cause I mean, cause if you're, you know, it's a small town, it's always a small town, right. And yeah. you know, these people, and you know, if, if you've heard of them, then maybe you've got a better chance of passing it through because this is, oh yeah, I know this organization. They work with XYZ or, you know, how much, how much of that was I part of it? Because you're, you're like, once you pass it on as the gatekeeper, you're say, you're almost giving it a stamp of approval. Like this is legitimate enough for me to hand it to yes, you. Yes. Which is scary, right? Cause you don't want to, I mean, your job's on the line if you don't give a good recommendation. So um, it may, it played a big role for me. Um, you know, it was, it, it was, But I had to make sure that wasn't just, you know, I think you have to hope you got to kind of know the gatekeeper really well. That's, you know, the person you're working with to get to the donor, because some people are going to be much more, you know, like, what is their style? Are they going to like resonate more with a lot of facts and outcomes or are they going to resonate more with stories? And so I think some of it is that piece and also just kind of showing me you have a proven track record, right? Here's our track record. I felt like when I used to get requests and they were from somebody who was neutral, like someone I'd never heard of, they came forward. It was a neutral slate, right? They got to create that with me, that relationship from the very beginning and help sell it to me. It was the ones that I already knew some of their background or if they had baggage that probably had a harder time because it was like, okay, yikes, they've had a lot of turnover in their executive director role or whatever it is. So I think you've got to be super aware, like self-aware as an organization of where you stand in the community's eyes and no, not everybody loves you. And so if I've, if there's a lot of rumors or news stories about your organization that aren't positive, it, you probably aren't going to even stand a chance. So you might need to rebuild that before you even come forward. Wow. That, this is a fascinating topic. I want to throw this to an expert. I think yes. we should find somebody that knows a lot about this stuff. I think this would stuff. be great. Yeah. Hi, everybody. It's Stacy Wedding here, and I'm so glad to have you joining us. And we have a really special guest today. Of course, all of our guests are special, but I'm really excited because I um, have never had the chance to meet Karen except when she was kind enough to agree to do this. And so let me tell you a little bit um, about Karen, and then she can tell us more. Uh, so we have Karen Singer with us today, and Karen is the Chief Philanthropy Officer for the Community Foundation of Western Nevada. And uh, let me tell you, I have seen that Community Foundation grow. Uh, gosh, I, you know, I, over the years, it is just exploding with growth and doing so many good things for, for uh, you know, the Northern Nevada region and our entire state and beyond. So Karen, welcome. Thank you. I'm really happy to be with you. This is exciting. So well, thank good. you for having me. Good. We're excited to have you. And I know that you have, from when I was reading your bio, I was really impressed, right? 25 years as a fundraising and marketing practitioner. Can you give our listeners some highlights about your background? 
Sure, sure. Yes, 25 years. I've been mainly working in the nonprofit sector. I, um, I've done a lot of work with food banks. Um, I've worked for three different food banks in my career, um, doing marketing and fundraising for those organizations. I um, have a little bit of higher education fundraising and marketing experience, worked for Oklahoma State University for a few years, actually with their uh, College of Medicine. So um, that was really exciting, um, great experience for me. I um, did one for-profit stint with um, IGT, International uh, Game Technology, um, which uh, manufactures slot machines. So that was a completely different <laughs> um, uh, experience for me, but, but one that was uh, very worthwhile and very interesting to learn about the, the um, casino industry, especially being here in Nevada, very important. Um, and so, yeah, so I, so it's a, it, you know, I started out um, uh, really in marketing when I went into the nonprofit sector, and then I gradually moved into fundraising, which is kind of true for a lot of people. I don't know that we all kind of come out of college or all of a sudden go, oh, I want to go into fundraising. We sort of migrate into it from other things, and so that's sort of the situation for me. So, um, but I've done, yeah, I've worn all the different hats. That you wear in, in, in nonprofit work, from volunteer management to special events, PR, fundraising, major gifts, um, uh, you know, just uh, office management. You've done it all, and I think many of our listeners can probably relate to that a bit, right? Um, I think, and it's uh, sort of the nature of being in a nonprofit, especially um, if it's a smaller to mid-sized nonprofit and not a really large one. Uh, wearing multiple hats it's it's some days i think you wonder what day what hat you're wearing on what day you got to remind yourself right exactly yeah so i do yeah i know where a lot of your listeners are coming from whether it's working for those smaller nonprofits even mid-sized nonprofits i mean we we do tend to wear a lot of hats in the work that we do Absolutely. Well, I think your perspective is going to come in really handy, um, especially for the question we got. Uh, so I'm going to dive right in. And uh, the question the question uh, was from a listener that, that basically wants to know about gatekeepers. And they asked, they said, there is a local foundation that does work in the space that we're working in, but we're having a difficult time getting past their gatekeeper. Do you have any ideas on how we can engage the gatekeepers so we can ultimately get to the donor? So Karen, tell us, do you have, I'm sure in your experience, for-profit and nonprofit, and working at a community foundation, you probably know a little thing or two about this. Yes. So I have encountered those gatekeepers, yes. It, it, it is a real thing. Um, and you know, if you, if you put yourself into the funder's shoes for just a moment, you can understand why they have those gatekeepers because there's hundreds and hundreds of us, you know, nonprofits that are that are all looking for funding, and so they they get a lot of requests, they get a lot of people coming their way, and so they're kind of trying to fill, figure out how they can kind of filter that and manage that. So you can at least understand why that doesn't necessarily make it. Um, easier when you're dealing with trying to get to the gatekeeper or get, get through the gatekeeper. I mean, I've, yeah, I've had that experience. Um, you know, sometimes uh, it's 
persistence. So it, it might be just continuing to try to follow up with that person. Because a lot of times it's just even getting that person to return your phone call. Um, you know, you, you've got the number for that foundation or that funder, you give them a call, you get a voice message, you leave a message. Hi, I'm so-and-so calling from ABC nonprofit, and I know you fund um, nonprofits in our area, and I'd love to talk to you about that, and then you don't get a call back. Or you send an email and no response. So sometimes it's persistence because these people are busy. So um, that's one tip is just continuing, you know, without... You know, maybe wait a week or two, try it again, you know, you spread it out. Obviously, after you've tried maybe three times, you go, okay, that's not working. Um, do you think, Karen, let me ask you, do you think that sometimes it's worth trying different types of communication vehicles? So if you, for example, if you leave a voicemail and you don't hear back, uh, do you think it's worth trying a different, a different vehicle? I think so. And I think sometimes... So um, I know a lot of us, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll make that call, you get the voice, um, you know, the, the greeting, the voice, and you leave that voice message, and, and you leave this really detailed message. Um, and sometimes it, sometimes less is better when you just say, hi, I'm so-and-so, and I'm calling to talk to you. Could you give me a call back? Here's my number. That way you haven't necessarily given away <laughs> why you're calling um, that that. that um, gatekeeper might be like, hmm, okay, I'm not sure why they're calling, so I guess I will call them back. If you kind of give them all the details, oh, yeah, I'm calling because I want funding, then they're going to go, hmm, okay, here's somebody else that's calling about funding. But, yeah, and then I think trying different um, modes of communication. So if, if a phone message didn't work, maybe send an email or if email didn't work, try um, calling, um, you know, and it, it can be difficult. It can be frustrating. Um if none of that's working, if you're just not, you're not even getting through there, you're not getting a response, um, I think figuring out then, so what I always like to do is, you know, I'll have my list of, you know, a few foundations that I've been trying to pursue and I've been, you know, having trouble getting through um, to the gatekeeper, getting through to the person I need to talk to. And so I will share that list with my board or develop committee, development committee, you know, People that um, obviously may have a connection with um, a trustee at that foundation um, and try to go in that way um, because that can make all the difference in the world. And there have been times when I have tried myself to get through to that funder, no avail, and then I find a board member or a committee member who has a connection with the trustee and they are, you know, they just have to pick up the phone, call their person off and they might have that person's cell phone, right, versus like the office number and they can get through to that person or, you know, that person will know them and they'll respond to them and they'll say, hey, I really think you, you, um, you know, should meet with ABC nonprofit organization. I think that, you know, you'd really be interested to hear about them and bingo, you've, you've got your, your foot in the door. So the, I mean, it is really, I mean, we hear this in fundraising all the time, right? That people give to people, it's all about the connections, it's all about the relationship, but it really is true. And oftentimes, it's a peer-to-peer -peer, um, kind of um, relationship that's going to really open up the door versus um, a development director or even the executive director of a nonprofit organization. You think that people would take that person's call, you know, if the, if the nonprofit executive director is, is calling, but... Sometimes it's that peer-to-peer -peer connection that really makes it happen. 
I love that's that's a really good reminder. And uh, as much as that's hard for some of us who say, "Why don't you, you know, want to get back to me?" Um, the reality is, is uh, peer to peer is is absolutely effective. I think the other thing you said that really resonated with me uh, and to our listeners. So many times, I think I'll hear organizations talk about going to their board and saying, "Who do you know? Who are your contacts? Right? Who can we get in front of?" And that's really a hard thing. If you put yourself in the board member's shoes to try to like assimilate who might be that right person and to just off the top of your head, think about who's a funder or contact for this organization. Um, so when you actually can go to your board and say, I've been trying to get in touch with so-and-so, right? I've been trying to get in touch with this organization. Mm-hmm. Now you've got something specific. And I don't know about you, Karen, but I found that works a lot better for just, you know, boards and their mentality coming to them with a list versus asking them for the list. Yeah, I absolutely agree, Stacey. I, I think um, it, it, it's so much easier if you have a specific list that you can circulate um, to your board members, to your committee members, and, um, and ask them, do you, and keep that list manageable. So, I mean, putting a list of 100 in front of them can be even daunting, but if you say, here are 10, you might even just take it in batches. Maybe each board meeting, you have a different group of funders, and it's, maybe it's only 20 or 30. You know, it's something that's easy for them to look through and see if they have any connections. And then the next meeting, you could throw another 10 or 20 or 30 in front of, in front of them and see if they know those people. But it is, you have to help people unlock their... Um, build connections that, you know, you have to help them think about who it is they know. And you, you could sit down with um, board members and committee members individually and kind of have that conversation. But even then you're just, you have to sort of say, well, so who do you, you know, if they're working, so who um, in your work inner circles do you know that you think might be interested in the organization? And then you move on to and who in your friends and family network, you almost have to kind of go in segments and, if you're going to take that route and again, kind of helping them sort of guiding them through that because otherwise if you just go, well, who do you know? They're like, well, I know a lot of people, but absolutely. Yeah. They just draw a blank. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think the other thing about this question, so, um, you know, let's say, so you get to the gatekeeper, right. And, and, and then, do you think there is a way to get past, I mean, there's a gatekeeper there for a reason. Let's be honest, right? right. I mean, and so I think this question sort of has this undertone of how do I get past, I want to get to the actual donor. I don't mm-hmm. want to deal with the gatekeeper. Right. So do you think that is a smart strategy or do you, would you encourage against that? Because perhaps that's disrespecting the process. I don't know. What, what are your thoughts? Well, that's a great question. It's kind of a hard one. And I, yeah, I've experienced that too, um, where, you know, you, you're, you're trying to figure out, okay, the gatekeeper is, you know, an obstacle and you're not having any luck there, so then you're trying to figure out how to go around that gatekeeper. And there are times when that is perfectly okay and it works. Um, and again, it's maybe your board member knows a trustee and makes the connection and that's perfectly fine. And then the trustee says, to the gatekeeper, yeah, you know, uh, we're going to entertain a proposal from that nonprofit, you know, in the process. But and there's other times when that gatekeeper can get kind of offended. Um, 
I actually, uh, you know, I, I had that experience happen with, it was a bank, um, and the bank is national. We, um, this was with a previous nonprofit I was working with, and we were getting funding from that bank in the state of Nevada, um, and, and our programming was also in California. So we thought, well, surely the, they'll give us funding in, you know, in California, right? I mean, Nevada is giving it to us, so why not California? But, um, you know, we, uh, we kept trying. We even used the contacts over here um, with the Nevada branches to get to the California branch. Gatekeeper was like, nope, sorry. Um, we used board members. Um, we finally did make, I actually had talked to that gatekeeper initially. And she said, you know, yeah, we found STEM education, but, uh, you know, we've got plenty of nonprofit organizations that are doing STEM education. So she just wasn't, you know, she wasn't interested in adding one more. Um, and then finally we got a board member to connect with um, one of their um, uh, sort of C-suite um, executives and uh, got to her. And I think she was offended. Um, I think she... She was kind of like, you know, I said the first time around, and I'm going to say it again, I'm not interested. So there are, <laughs> unfortunately, there, it doesn't always work out. And I think you have to take each situation, you know, each funder separately, individually, and, and try to understand what the politics are there from people who may know if, if other nonprofits have gotten funding, what was that process like? It's always good to ask around and then you can get a sense of it. Is it okay to go around the gatekeeper or it's not okay? Um, yeah, that's a tough one. Uh, yeah. I think, I think you, you brought up a good point though, right? It's um, sometimes people are wanting to get to the end game and um, at the end of the day, the end game is the gatekeeper and it's by design. And so there, there can be, there can be some, you know, uh, offended or why you didn't follow the process. So, so I love your advice about seeing if you can talk to others who've been through that process to, to get a sense from them. It mm -hmm. also feels sort of uh, instinctually like if you have a, that peer to back to peer to peer is someone who is um, higher level to connect with, you know, the actual donor, um, great, because that probably might save you a lot of time. Everybody, the gatekeeper time too, right? So, right. Um, and it is challenging. I know it's frustrating because, you know, these the funders, um, you know, sometimes they think they know um, everything that's going on in the community. Sometimes they really do. Sometimes maybe not. Um, I think they, they do tend to get sort of their um, – they're kind of the group of nonprofits that they are comfortable with, that they, they know um, and that they fund and they sort of fund again and again, which is, you know, again, understandable. I think figuring out how you can educate them is, is key. And another example of that is that we, we've been trying to break in with a foundation. Again, this is a previous nonprofit I was with. Um, not having any luck getting through to the gatekeeper. Went ahead and sent grant proposals. They were getting turned down. It was finally one of our volunteers who was the nephew of one of the trustees oh, of wow. the foundation who said, hey, I'm, I've been volunteering with the organization. They're great. Their programming is great. Um, and he told his aunt, and she's like, oh, okay, well, I thought they were only doing this. You know, she had a, a misconception about it. So the fact that her nephew was a volunteer and was able to to let her know what we were doing and that she should, you know, really be talking to us, open that door. But it's always about just 
finding the right person that can connect and can deliver that story um, to that funder and help, you know, crack that door open. Absolutely. That makes such a difference, doesn't it? Well, that is all great advice. And let me ask you one um, sort of final question. Uh, I say that, but I'm so filled with questions. So don't don't quote me on that, right? I may uh, end up asking you a couple. But I'm curious in, because you work at a community foundation, a great one, um, I think there is a, sometimes a perception by nonprofits that uh, that there are gatekeepers within community foundations. Um, can you maybe just speak to that? So I think there can be gatekeepers in community foundations for sure. I and I you know it's one of the reasons I actually love our community foundation and, and why I, I came here was because I was I was really impressed with how open we are and really uh, um you know excited to meet with really anybody that wants to know more about the community foundation whether that's a nonprofit that wants to know how they might um connect and get get funding to the community foundation or a donor um, that wants to come and set up their charitable giving um but i have actually experienced i've, I've connected or tried to connect with other community foundations that will go unnamed but they um they yeah it was really tough to um, get through and get that meeting. I think again, um, it, it, it's about finding the right person. So, in a few cases, I, you know, went to board members and said, "Hey, I'm trying to connect with this community foundation. Do you have some connections there?" And that was how we opened up the door there. So it can kind of be the same, the same situation as working with, say, a private foundation. Um, yeah. But there can be gatekeepers. I think. Um, I would hope, you know, community foundations are all about really impacting the community and bringing a lot of people together to do that. So hopefully community foundation is sort of open arms and embracing um, people coming their way. Um, but I think it goes back to kind of the same advice that like you might have to find um, the right connector, the right person that knows um, someone on the board of the community foundation or maybe someone that's involved with the committee and kind of um, work it that way in order to try to get that that meeting but I, you know i would hope that community foundations are wanting to they want to meet with nonprofits to, to know what they're doing so they know that when they're talking to donors that's part of that education and helping donors understand what's going on in the community i love that um you know i'm dating myself but many years ago i had the honor of working at a community foundation for six six and a half years and um there was nothing better our donors loved being connected i mean that was part of why they actually set up donor advised funds with us right they loved being connected um to what was going on in the community they loved us sort of um, maybe doing some initial vetting for them to find the right fit, but to then make that connection. So um, as with anything, it's probably, uh, this doesn't provide a black and white answer, but it depends, right? I think it depends. It does. And I mean, that's right. You want that magic, um, yeah, that magic answer that, that um, you know, will help unlock um, that opportunity, but it, it does depend. And I think one of the misconceptions too, I think maybe, and this might be why nonprofits, you know, might get a little frustrated with community foundations, is that um, it's not as if all of a sudden there's just um, there's going to be a direct connection with the donors that kind of the community foundation. The reason donors come to a community foundation 
is often because they um, they might want to be a little bit more private about their giving. Um, they that's a way for them to um, um, sort of use the resources and the research and the education at the Community Foundation to kind of figure out how they want to channel their philanthropic um, support. Um, and so I think nonprofits maybe think that um, you know their the doors will just kind of be swung open and, and they can just kind of contact donors directly or that will um, you know call up donors and say hey you know I just met with XYZ nonprofit and I think you should give to them it doesn't work that way but it does where, where it does work is that we want to know about those nonprofit organizations we want to know what they're doing the programs and projects the campaigns they're working on and then we can like share that in sort of different educational um, environments and opportunities share and communicate that out to the donors as a whole or when donors are asking us hey do you know what what nonprofits are giving to the environmental sector what nonprofits are helping um, homeless youth yeah um, and then, then we can say oh well yeah we know about all of these um, you know programs and projects and opportunities that are going on Absolutely. Well, it's a, I know it's a huge resource to donors and at the end of the day, it is, it is also a resource to nonprofits. You have an additional person that's sort of championing right at the community foundation that is hopefully championing your cause and the good work you're doing. So, um, so thank you for clarifying and helping, helping with that. Um, so final, so I knew I wouldn't ask, you know, I knew I would ask one more question. So what is the best way for our nonprofit listeners that are statewide, right? We've got people all over the state of Nevada listening. Um, what is the best way for them to connect with um, the Community Foundation of Western Nevada? So I think the best way to connect with us is, um, is probably just, you know, through our website, nevadafund.org. That's pretty easy to remember, um, and that way they can go on, they can kind of see what we're doing, see our community initiatives, um, and then all our contact information is on the website, phone number, address, and all that, and so I think that's a great way. And they can also connect with us individually. Um, we have our staff and our board members listed, so nevadafund.org, I think great. is a great way to, to reach out to us. Well, we will put the website in our show notes, so people can also refer to that. Uh, Karen, thank you for your time, sharing your expertise for what you're doing for our state and for our, you know, our communities. Well, thank you. I really appreciate it. Thanks. All right, that's it. You did it. You got to the end of another episode of Nonprofit Everything. Just to remind you, Nonprofit Everything is a production of the Alliance for Nevada Nonprofits. So go check out AllianceForNevadaNonprofits.com. Uh, website is relatively new. There's a bunch of cool stuff on there. So go check it out. If you're not a member, please be a member. There are a bunch of ways that you can support this podcast. You can send us a question. You can share it with someone. Uh, one of the cool things that we're starting to do now is if you go to the Facebook page, there will be individual questions occasionally posted. So that makes it easier to forward to somebody. So you're not saying, hey, I'd like you to spend an hour or not an hour, but a half an hour with Andy and Stacy. So now you can spend like three minutes because that's we're much more bearable in short amounts. Right? <laughs> Bite-sized chunks. Exactly. Uh, but thanks for listening. And we will see you in a couple of weeks. Thank you.